0: Welcome to the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast, where we bring you interesting and hopefully entertaining and informative podcasts about a myriad of topics. This time, we're talking about the weight loss industry. Our expert guests are Dr. Vincent McDarby, chartered member of the Psychological Society of Ireland, and Roshin Gowan, a clinical specialist dietitian uh, who's CORU registered. You're both very welcome. Let's start off at the beginning, Vincent. What exactly are we talking about when we say the weight loss industry?
1: Uh, Well, I suppose the weight loss industry is an umbrella term for a broad range of companies that provide services focused on weight loss, things like uh, low-fat meals, meal replacement, weight loss supplements, diet experts. You've got television programmes, web- websites. I mean, the list is endless. It's its a massive industry, it's big business and it's getting bigger. It's worth uh, a hell of a lot of money. It is, yeah. I mean, if you take in the US alone, last year it was worth £72 billion and getting bigger. They reckon that it's in, increasing by, I think, 3% year on year. Um, it's also one of the most advertised industries in the world. And it's not regulated? um no it, to to a large extent it's pretty much not regulated um and just, i mean despite the massive amount of money that's been fed into the weight loss industry we're still going up we're still we're still getting heavier i mean if you look at in ireland at the moment latest figures would show that 6 out of 10 people are either o- obese or overweight so i mean essentially it's an industry that's built on failure and one of the reasons that it is built on failure, I suppose, because it's, it's fraught with misinformation. So there are lots of low fat
0: foods and there's more coming online uh, daily. They're, they're obviously appealing to a huge audience. And at the same time, as you say, we have an obesity crisis. So how have we gotten here?
2: Well, that's a good question, actually. So um, back in the 60s, the Sugar Federation um, successfully lobbied Harvard scientists to produce guidelines that dietary fat was the cause of heart disease. And by the 1980s, a low fat diet was so mainstream, it was prescribed by doctors, uh, the government, promoted by the food industry as a means to treat heart disease. And that just wasn't in the States. It was also in Europe as well. And in uh, Ireland and the UK, uh, we, you know, we totally took it on. And uh, even though no clear evidence that it prevented heart disease Mm. or promoted weight loss. And uh, as a consequence, the food industry responded and the foods targeted to a population that wanted to be slim um, who or had to lose weight because they were obese. Um, products branded as low-fat and healthy, so for example, low-fat bars, yogurts, cereals, were. if you go into any supermarket, you can see these still on the shelf. Now we know that fat is really tasty, mm-hmm. so if we're taking something tasty out, we have to replace it and that's where sugar comes in. So. We know also that sugar has been proven to have an association with weight gain.
0: So are, are all these low fat foods, are they all just full of sugar?
2: Um, some are, some yeah. aren't. But those that have been targeted as, you know, for slimming um, purposes actually are f- more sugar than what's recommended. So it, it's a bit of a kind of a rock in a hard place. You, can, yeah. you know, you'd, you're better off not actually eating them at all.
0: And scientists in the medical profession are, th- are they are they becoming more transparent?
2: Yes, absolutely. So back in the sixties, these guys were paid like f- the equivalent of fifty thousand dollars, and to be able to um, declare that sh- you know that sh- fat was the problem when it came to heart disease. But now we're m- more stringent with um, research, and we have to declare, have give it, disclose anything financially, any sort of associations with mm. food industry or etc. And um, everything is now in a peer journal. It's it's reviewed a lot. more. Does that mean
0: that that the low fat foods that we're seeing on the shelves these days are better than they were 20 years ago?
2: I think the tide is changing. Mm-hmm. I think that we're looking at fat in a very different way. Um, There was a big study a while back that looked at saturated fat and whether it did actually have an association with heart disease, cholesterol, Mm -hmm. etc. But the guidelines haven't changed on that. However, we are realising that dietary fat is a lot more important and in some ways can actually help with weight loss, for example, dairy. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think the tide is changing, but like anything, it's slow.
0: Well, let's move on to another part of the industry, the dieting industry and fad diets in particular. Let's concentrate on a few of them. Firstly, (laughs) uh, the ketogenic diet. Uh, What is that?
2: So ketogenic diet is really popular at the moment. If you go onto any social media platform, you'll see. A lot of these people who go to the gym and it's really popular. It's uh, it's basically like other extremely low carb, high fat uh, protein diets um, like the Palo, Atkins or the South Beach. And um, what what it means is, is you're just cutting out uh, food groups such as your carbohydrates. You're using ketones, which is a byproduct of fat uh, metabolism metabolised in the liver and that's your main source of fuel. Mm -hmm. So dieters put themselves in something called a metabolic state of ketosis. Now there are no studies that have proven that this is an effective way to lose weight and maintain the weight loss. So you could experience dramatic weight loss but in a short term um, and at the same time feel pretty rough. Some people are using these type of fad diets like ketogenics for example to kickstart a diet but then it's you also have to be able to start to integrate normal healthy eating as well because sustainably you can't just not eat fruit and vegetables for the rest of your life it's just not sustainable and also having too much saturated fat I mean it's still associated with raising your cholesterol levels and we know that elevated cholesterol is not good for heart health so you have to have a timeline if you're going to be doing these type of things.
0: Tell me about the alkaline diet. I find that one really interesting.
2: Okay, so this is popular with a lot of celebrities. And basically what this is, is that um, the idea is foods can alter the pH in your blood, make it more acidic or more alkaline. Mm -hmm. Now, the pH in your blood is always set at around 7.4. That's just normal homeostasis. That's just the way that your body works. If you're is a lot lower or higher than that, you're going to be in a critical care unit and you're going to be hooked up to lots of different things because that is a state of metabolic uh, acidosis um, and you're going to be seriously sick. So, so
0: you can't alter your pH level. in foods your
2: Foods cannot alter the pH of your blood. Your stomach is going to be naturally more acidic than other parts of your body, but your blood is going to always remain around 7.4 if you're a healthy, normal person walking around the streets. It's just you. You're, by eating too much meat or too much wheat, which is perpetrated as being acidic by the person who came up with this diet, you are not going to change. Is it a bit, bit like hate.
0: detoxing that, you know, there's no <laughs> such thing as your, your body is detoxing naturally anyway?
2: Well, that's what your liver is there for. Yeah. I mean, people forget that when they talk about the detox, by detoxing or these teas or or lemon and water or any of these kind of things that just come out are so crazy. You forget that your liver is that's your function of your liver is to metabolize and to clear these toxins away.
0: These diets are designed for a quick loss. Do people then go on in general and, and maintain that by changing their lifestyle?
1: The reality is no, yeah. they don't. And that's that's one of the problems with, with um, fad diets. They offer a quick fix, you know, and who doesn't want a quick fix to a solution? Um, and, you know, one of the, the things with fad diets is people can sometimes see progress initially pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but they don't maintain it because it, the sort of changes that people make, the drastic changes that people have to make over a, relative, you know, a relatively short period of time, but they're not maintainable. They're generally not things that we can do over, you know, a, a significant period of time. There's, you know, with, with a lot a lot of these fad diets there can be an elimination mentality. You know, you're, I'm going to ex- completely eliminate something from my diet. OK. We can do that on the short term, but we can't do it in the long term. And usually eliminating something completely from our diet on the long term isn't healthy. Mm.
2: Yeah, for example, if you're cutting out dairy or even that whole food group of um, foods that are rich in calcium or vitamin D, I mean, we already are depleted, like we already have to supplement our diet with vitamin D because of where, we, you know, we don't get much sun. Yeah. So, over the long term you can just see people becoming deficit in certain nutrients Or or
0: people will will decide themselves that they want to go gluten free. But foods
2: that are high in uh, that are gluten free are high in fat because again they've had to take out something Mm. to make the food taste tasty so they've added extra fat. So in actual fact gluten free food is not um, more healthier than Mm. other foods. It's got more fat in it so you're not going to actually be able to achieve that weight loss that yeah. you wanted to.
1: They're really, a lot of them are, um, they're appealing to our vanity more than our sanity. Yeah. You know, they're selling these quick fixes and, they, and they're very much focused on things like, oh, you lose two inches around your waist, three inches around the, their waist. They don't f- focus on things like, well, this will reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, uh, so, so we tend to focus on, on, on those kind of wrong, they're, they're, they're selling us on the wrong things. Speaking mm. speaking
0: of them selling us, I mean, there's <laughs> There have always been brand ambassadors for products, including weight loss products. Do you think the current social media influencers uh, who are doing this are much different from the ones who are appearing in commercials for these products in years gone by?
1: Um, no, I think. I mean, obviously, we've seen. Um, you know, with, with social media, it's it's a it's a whole new medium in which the, this sort of advertising is happening. We're having these brand ambassadors. It's it's the same nonsense being, being being peddled in a, in a different way i mean research would show that you know that uh, things that we associate products that we associate with celebrities that we were we're more um predisposed to we're going to be more predisposed towards those products mm. so these companies are tripping over themselves to you know to associate their product with the the latest Celebrity, whether that's you know a, a person that's a sports star or it's an Instagrammer or it's an influencer, or whoever whoever it is, if they can get their product associated with this these, these people, um, and people are positively inclined to them, they're going to be positively inclined to their product. And a lot of times, these people, they're they're you know they're associating their current you know, particularly if they're they're looking well and they're looking healthy, well, it's because I'm taking. Whatever the product is, yeah. which is which is not necessarily the case. I mean, no. we remember. I mean, was it a number of years ago? Fern Britain, the the, um, the, presenter. the presenter in over in the UK. And uh, she, you know, she was on about, she, she lost a lot of weight and she was very much promoting. I think it was uh, oh, a certain yeah. diet that she was on and um, was promoting it heavy. And, you know, and it turned out a couple of years later that she'd actually got a gastric. Cancer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember where that was come from. Yeah.
0: 20 years ago, if somebody was a brand ambassador for one of these diet companies, they were doing 30 second commercials. They were on TV, they were on radio, they were on in the newspaper. You knew it was a commercial with... Uh, influencers, you don't always know you're being sold things. And I know they're supposed to use hashtag ad and hashtag sponsorship. But they don't always. So it, does that make it more difficult for people to, to see through it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, particularly within with, with the, in the likes of Instagram. Mm. Um, I mean, most of these Instagram celebrities, uh, as they are, they're getting sponsored. They're getting paid yeah. by these different companies to promote those products. And they're not being upfront. A lot of them that these are uh, these these are actually things that they're being sponsored for.
0: What about the TV programs like the Operation Transformations and The Biggest Loser? I mean, they, they are very, very popular. Are they more entertainment than informative?
1: Yeah. They're, I mean, they're not science. They're entertainment. Um, I mean, we can take a pragmatic approach and say, well, actually, look, you know, they do at least raise public consciousness yeah. about, you know, the, about weight loss and healthy behaviour and that. But the problem is that they promote a lot of behaviours towards health loss that we know are actually counterproductive in terms of weight loss. You know, if you if you look at the likes of those programmes, they focus on very much so kind of Big changes over short periods of time because the programs themselves, you know, they'll only last yeah, maybe eight weeks, ten eight, weeks, eight, Whatever. ten weeks. And what you want, what they look for is people that make massive changes in their lifestyle um, over short periods of time, but they're completely unsustainable. And also, you have the issue where you viewers at home, you know, they're very much so encouraged to, you know, you pick some contestant that you feel is like yourself, yeah, and say, Yeah, okay, I'm going to follow what they're doing, I'm, I'm going to follow, you know, their, their dietary pattern, their exercise pattern. And um, but what happens, inevitably, the viewers at home, they're not able to here and they fall off. Now the reason being is these contestants have one massive big motivator that the person at home doesn't have and that's an audience of 250,000 people. So so while people are on the programme, yeah okay they're going to be a lot more motivated. The person at home Generally, they can start. You know the changes that are that are that they can see the contestant doing. They can they can follow it for a period of time, but they'll drop off. What happens in the end then is the person at home feels well. The problem is me. Okay, you know I, I didn't have the motivation. Mm. I didn't have the ability, um, and they start to become demotivated and saying, well, it, what what's the point? You know, and if we become demotivated, we're much more le- likely to engage in unhealthy behaviors, whether that's just lie on the couch and watch television, and we're less likely to try again.
2: Just to say that we're up. Transformation. They do have a registered dietitian yeah. on that show. Um, and who does give, you know, advice that is evidence-based in terms of healthy eating. I can't, I don't know what those contestants are like a year or two later, but just to kind of put that point in as well. So uh,
0: they do demonstrate, I suppose, uh, effective ways of losing weight, but whether it's maintained or not is another thing. The people on those programs, as you say, they have the motivation of the audience watching them every week. What about the weight loss programs? You know, the ones where you can sign in and get weighed weekly. There's a bit of motivation there because you're in a group and you're all supporting each other
2: is some of the evidence that they are more effective than self-help mm. um but it's limited i mean there's not big studies on it um and there is actually quite a high dropout rate as well um so often you see isn't it in January time, lots yeah, of people yeah. start to join. And then it's just, I suppose, interesting to see what it'd be like six months later are those same people maintaining that program.
0: How long can people go to those things for? I mean, is, is it sign up for the rest of your life?
2: <laughs> it seems like that way, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I think there's been a huge tide of change uh, from dietitians who are trying to help patients uh, lose weight. Um, we've kind of encroached a little bit into the psychology part and um, by using intuitive eating. So it's kind of teaching people more about mindfulness and being able to say, you know, when, being able to recognize when they're hungry and not focusing on calories mm. or on low fat foods, but focusing more on knowing what, you, you know, Obviously, we give advice about portion sizes, but knowing when you feel hungry and not overeating, and it's been adopted a little bit in the weight industry as well.
0: Do do people put too much faith in the uh, weight loss industry? I would say so.
1: Um, yeah, um, and I think because a lot there's a lot of misinformation. I mean, there is some accurate information mm. in the weight loss in- industry, but there is an awful lot of misinformation in the mm. weight, weight loss in- industry, and trying to wade through that is difficult. You know, I yeah. mean, someone that starts a diet within twelve months. Ninety uh, percent of them are going to be the same weight or heavier. Do you know? Mm-hmm. And when you, so when you look at that statistic, do you know, ninety percent of them are going to be the same weight or heavier, um, and this is down to the information that we're given. And, and if you took an analogy, so just say you know you went to a used car salesman and you're buying a car off him, and he said to you, "Well, look, I've got this car here, but it's not great. You know, you know, ninety percent uh, chance that in twelve months time, it's just going to be, it's just going to." Uh, give, give in. It's going gonna, it's gonna <laughs> to die. Do you know. First of all, you wouldn't. You probably wouldn't buy that car. But if for whatever reason you did decide to buy that car and six months later that car broke down, you wouldn't blame yourself. You wouldn't say, well, I drove it too hard or I didn't check the oil. What you'd say was, was well, actually, well, the car was a dud from the start. Yeah. In terms of the weight loss industry, it's the same thing. It's the wrong information. And what's happened is people are starting diets. They're, they're taking an approach to weight loss with the wrong information. And when it goes wrong, they blame themselves. The problem isn't the people. It's not that they haven't got, that they've got poor m- motivation. The problem is they've been given the wrong the wrong information. But they continue to go back to themselves. People that fail at, at attempts at weight loss blame themselves and say, I didn't try hard enough. I'm not good enough. I didn't motivate enough.
0: Mm. Well, then a big food and drinks industry, they, they have a part to play in this debate.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, p- particularly because the food industry um, make what are, I suppose, high profit, unhealthy foods to pr- um, project them as healthier than they are. You know, um and to that to that extent kind of big food is 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 a little bit like big tobacco and it uses some of the same techniques that they've been using, you know, particularly like science, like what what Roshin sp- spoke about there earlier about mm. kind of casting doubt on kind of on, on peer reviewed science. They, you know, they would have paid researchers to to um make kind of peer reviewed science appear as junk science. So without appearing transparent at mm. the same time. Yeah. Um, they they also they associate their products with healthy behavior. You know, you you mm-hmm. look at, um, for instance, RGA Cool Camps are sponsored by Kellogg's. And mm. um, you look at the likes of the biggest sponsors of the Olympics would be the likes of Coke, and McDonald's. And um, so these are kind of busy associated. But, but to of, be fair, they're okay in moderation. And <clears throat> um, they're okay in moderation, but they are being promoted to a certain extent. You know, they're being associated with. Healthy behaviors yeah. to give give more of an inclination that these are actually healthy foods. Healthy foods I you know, too. yeah, and you've also got you know what what um you know what what also big tobacco would have done it would have kind of created you know when there was starting to be concern in relation to the potential damage that uh, smoking did and that mm. smoking was related to you know lung cancer and heart disease they started bringing new products that were healthier products, you know? And we see some of that as well in the in the food industry where we think like the most obvious example would be things like diet drinks. I mean, Roisin, I suppose you would know kind of some, some of the research on diet drinks.
2: So, the, the I mean, they were talking about how sweeteners, for example, there's some studies that would say that if you're having, you know, sweeteners, that it can play the same sort of role on your brain as sugar does and therefore make you want to eat more sugary foods. Um, and then there's other studies that that kind of say that that's not the case, but there are slightly smaller studies. But it it goes to show that, um, it, you know, if you think that you're just drinking fizzy drinks, mm-hmm. um, thinking that it's a healthy drink to drink, it, it's it's not really playing a role in healthy eating.
0: Can the people not be expected to take responsibility for their own intake though?
2: Well, I have to... I, that's a good question. But one of the questions, if I was turning this on its head and hmm. just say... Where you know if people are trying to lose weight effectively, they're what they're trying to do is they're trying to lose adipose tissue, okay, mm-hmm. excess fat. So where does that fat go? Nobody, not many people, can actually answer this question. Do you know where where fat goes when I, it's I've gone? I've never even
0: heard of whatever that kind of fat is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's exhaled by our lungs. Okay, that's where fat goes. So too much. So, too much food, obviously, is converted into triglycerides or a type of breakdown of fat, component of fat, and it's stored as fat, fat as we know it. Now, when we try to lose up weight, um, what we're doing is we're using up stored fat. And the chemical equation of that is C55, H104 and O6. So, that's carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. So, basically, we are exhaling carbon dioxide, mm. which is part of the fat, when we use it up, that's where fat is going. But how does, how does how do we exhale it? Well, it's probably, it's actually from reducing what we're eating so we're not contributing towards stored fat and it's moving more and that's how chemically or scientifically we lose weight. Simply put,
0: Eat eat, 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 eat less, less, (laughs) move more.
2: But why do people not take
1: responsibility for doing that themselves? I think people do take responsibility mm-hmm. for doing that themselves, but we can make the environment easier. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I mean nobody wants to be in the nanny state, but we can do things that make it easier for people to live a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I mean, I mean, things. You know, pe- people talk about things like sugar tax and that, and you know, there's, there's, you know, the research is, you know, is unsure whether the actual impact that has. But you know, an example would be something like, for instance, if you look at primary school children compared to, you know, when I was in primary school, you know, the lunches that people brought in were extremely mm-hmm. unhealthy. Now, most primary schools have a healthy lunch policy, you know, mm-hmm. so the children bring in healthy lunches. So it's much more easy for children or for parents to actually send a, a healthy lunch to school with a, with, with a child and that'll be eaten because that's, that's what's happened. That's the environment there. So there's an example of kind of changing the environment to make it easier to engage in healthy behaviors. I
0: would have said the exact opposite because kids I see nowadays tend to said he's sounding like a real awful, Um <laughs> they're out having their McDonald's for lunch or they're they're out having a you know a roll from the center rather than something healthy being prepared at home well, Portion
2: sizes are a lot bigger these mm. days than they would have been back in my day or back you know even 30 or 40 years yeah. ago as well. So you mentioned a roll. So a uh, you know, half a baguette is almost like the equivalent of two or three portion sizes yeah. of sliced bread. So people are probably not as aware of portion sizes. And if they were, they would be quite surprised as to what, you know, one serving of a carbohydrate is. Yeah
1: and i think i think you're talking about there you know when you say you know kind of uh, kids having unhealthy lunches you know going to mcdonald's uh, that tends to be secondary school children yes, where, yeah, where they have more yeah. control i suppose what i was talking about was primary school children where the school has much more control mm-hmm. over what yeah. they eat and i think their lunches are a lot more healthy than than what they would have been a generation ago
0: and if you can get them then you can train them i suppose absolutely for, and, for and, for and the reason, research
1: shows that you know if you that you know healthy eating patterns are set up in in early childhood Right then, we're coming towards the end. How do we successfully lose weight? Well, it's, it's not, a, cli- it's not a, a quick fix. <laughs> yeah. okay? It's about making small, achievable changes that we're able to maintain over time. You know, there, there's a tendency, like we spoke about earlier, to, to do things because I may have a holiday coming up or a wedding coming up. So I want to, you know, I want to lose a significant amount of weight in a short period of time. But that's not really an effective way of losing weight. And even if you do lose a significant amount of weight over a short period of time, chances are you're not going to keep it, up, keep mm-hmm. it off. What you need to do is to decide for yourself, what's a small healthy change that I can make and maintain? Okay, a change that may have a negligible impact actually on your weight, but it's about slowly changing your lifestyle. Once you make that change and if you're able to maintain that change, you build on it because what happens is, okay, we make changes as regards our lifestyle and then life happens. You know, we become stressed. We don't know what's around the corner. And once we get stressed, we go back to old patterns of behaviour. So if we make big change, that change goes at the time of stress. If we make small changes that we're able to maintain at times of stress, we continue to maintain those small changes. So it's about making small changes and building up on them over time. So it's a number of small changes. Yeah, yeah. It's
2: just and one or two changes that won't seem like such a a huge overwhelming thing to do either. When we give education to clients who are trying to lose weight, obviously we give the science, we talk about healthy eating, we talk about portion sizes. But we look at what they're eating at the moment and we say, what are one or two things that you can change from this? So, for example, maybe not having tree snacks in addition to tree mm. meals a day, um, maybe sort of reducing alcohol intake um, during the week um, if they're having you know more than the units that are recommended. Although I'd say quite a lot of people have <laughs> units that are more <laughs> than recommended. No idea
0: what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, reducing
2: portion yeah. sizes, having you know, changing from a baguette to two slices of bread—little things like that can actually make a change over a long term in terms of calorie deficit. And moving more, moving more, as we know, is good for our mental health. But it's also good for, as I was trying to explain about the whole science part of expending energy and exhaling um, out through your lungs. (laughs) Fat, (laughs) in inverted (laughs) commas.
0: Is it easier to get out of food group altogether rather than, like, say, take biscuits, to give up biscuits altogether rather than have the odd
1: biscuit? Uh, Do people find that easier? Um, I think it it can differ from from person to person. Mm. Going cold turkey on something like that. Can be difficult. Now you can't you do to, it with everything, but you, you can't do it in. The, but I mean, it, it is important if you look at particularly something like habitual eating. So to take for example, because um, people think, okay, well, once we're full, we stop eating. Mm. You know, you know, I can be full and go to the cinema and I, I eat the popcorn. Yeah, you know, and I do it all the time, and it's not that I'm hungry; it's habitual eating. Yeah, you know. So there's a lot of things. You know. So in relation to the, you know things like biscuits. You know we're not eating them particularly at a time that we may hugely desire them. It just becomes habitual. This is something I do. Okay, I get pleasure out of watching television, and I have a biscuit. Mm-hmm. it. I get pleasure out of so the certain things that we get pleasure out of, and we actually associate food with it. And we, we've, and what happens is that the pleasure that we get from whatever it is we associate with the food as well. So often people, you know, for instance, you know, people talk about Netflix and chill. You know, mm. a lot of people like on a Sunday evening to lie out with, with the Netflix and whatever it is, the, you know, the <laughs> chocolate or the junk food, or, you know.
2: That's not and what Netflix and chill means. Though. Okay,
1: okay. <laughs> but, but essentially, I suppose what, what I'm getting at is that um, th- there's a lot of kind of behaviours, the habitual behaviours that we, we associate food with pleasure that we can actually start to break that link.
0: Well, I think we've learned an awful lot. I've certainly enjoyed uh, this PSI podcast. Dr. Vincent McDerby, Chartered Member of the Psychological Society of Ireland and Roisin Gown, Clinical Specialist Dietitian who is KORU registered. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, That was the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast, and we'll see you next time.